Shut up and sit down. When the Wind Blows is an epic-inspired podcast bringing innovation to professional development. Welcome back to When the Wind Blows, an epic podcast for parents, teachers, leaders, and anyone vested in the world of education. So today is part two of a topic. We started last week with some students. Uh, this week we're going to talk with Nick. He is an educator, now administrator in Epic Charter School. Um, Nick, how did you get involved in education and what made you come to Epic? Hi, well thanks for having me here. When I initially joined education it was straight out of college i became a teacher immediately after finishing my undergrad so i did the alternative certification route but i jumped straight into teaching high school english and i basically did that until i went to do my master's program i joined my master's program in like 2011 got that done and then when my wife and i moved to oklahoma i continued teaching um what brought me to epic was actually the move to the communication side of things, stepping outside of the classroom. So I had been teaching high school English um, for pretty much that entire time. I taught middle school for a couple of years. Um, but I was a senior English teacher, and uh, the opportunity came up to join the communication team over here. And um, there were a number of reasons why I thought that it was going to be a good fit. For one thing, it was obviously making use of my communications background um, for another, I really thought that the model uh, of EPIC was something that was important to have just in the Oklahoma education landscape. As you know, I, having spent all of these years, you know, I was 10 years in the classroom uh, before coming here. So having spent all of these years, you see students who fall through the cracks, frankly, you know. And as much as in education we like to tell ourselves that that's not something that we allow to happen, it's just something that does happen. And so having kind of a more fluid model for students who have, you know, uncertain home situations or have a lot of kind of extracurricular things which take them out of school and obviously there are also interpersonal conflicts and, um, you know, other kinds of things that make it difficult for a traditional environment for a student is obviously really important. So uh, I thought that I thought that Epic's mission was an important one, and um, so I joined last last summer, right before the 2019 school year. Awesome! That is really cool. I guess I didn't realize you had spent so much time in the traditional classroom. Uh, before making a switch. Uh, you look relatively young and we won't get into <laughs> any more of that. <laughs> uh, so we first talked about this and I was like, what kind of, you know, podcast would you be interested in doing? I've got this one on passion, do you think? And you're like, yeah, that's the one. What about, uh, I don't know, finding passion for students, teachers, administrators in education made you be like, yeah, let's talk about that one. 
Well, it's an interesting thing because it's the thing that's kind of lacking the most because of what a traditional school model looks like, you know. You've got this system that's based off of an assembly line idea, right? We send these kids through these schools and they're all going to do these same things and at the end of it we're going to have this competent, you know, capable person uh, who's going to be able to contribute to society in whatever way. Uh, but the fact is that, that that's just a fairy tale, you know because each person learns differently, each person has different interests. And so very quickly, we smother the passions that kids have um, in favor of getting them to comply with what a school day should look like. And I think uh, it shows in a number of different ways, and, and most especially as adults, when we look at the high rate of dissatisfaction that people have in their work, in their lives. Um, you know, we live in this, in this very wealthy country with lots of opportunities and, and very few of us are, are particularly happy about any of it. So I think that developing passions, caring about the passions of students is a really important part of, of being an educator because if you just want them to show up and do the work and sit quietly and not make a fuss, you're not being a good teacher, frankly. Yeah, I've, I've heard teachers say in the past uh, when kids said, well, what's the point of school, you know? Uh, I, I've heard somebody say, well, going to school shows that you can sit in one place and do something for a certain amount of time. And I just thought, wow, like how anti what school should be. Uh, and I first got into this topic, I was at a Google conference and somebody was talking about Genius Hour. Have you heard of Genius Hour? I have not. So it's basically, um, basically the kids show up to this one hour period and they get to study whatever it is that they want. Usually they have some sort of a driving question behind it so that it stays on pace. and. And the teacher is managing chaos, which sounds crazy, you know, because every kid is learning their own thing, what they want to be passionate about. Um, but the guy was talking and he was like, it is crazy how surprised I was by what these kids could actually pull out of this one hour at the end of the semester because it was a semester long class. And, and the, the district had given this guy, I mean, they had obviously got bukus of money that they've got a guy who's just <laughs> allowed to, to drive passion. But it ended up being one of those things that were like, yeah, we're renewing that for next semester because the projects that these kids have come up with, it's surprising us all, right? And people are kind of shocked by what kids were able to do. And so I thought, man, I am going to try this. They have to learn, you know, whatever. Uh, and at the time, like, I love U.S. history. Um, we were teaching U.S. history standards, and I had banded together with another teacher. And we thought, you know what? What we're going to do is we're going to assign them a standard that they can come up with any way in the world to learn it. But the goal is that they have to teach that standard to their peers. And we were so incredibly shocked at the number of um, different ways students were bringing their content to us. And then the students were super stoked about the, the way that, oh my gosh, did you see Nick's way of, of you know, presenting the Boston Massacre? That was amazing. And, 
And so all these kids were getting really excited about a content area that nobody really likes to talk about history. It's so boring. It's lame. Um, but they were getting really excited about it. I thought, how else can I do this? And so I've, I've really liked the idea of giving the choice to the kids and letting their passion drive it. Obviously I limited it to that history and to that one standard. Um, and since I've opened things up and kids can learn whatever the deuce they want, as long as they find a way to relate it to a standard and I open up all the standards and say, pick one, you find a way to, to, to learn it and then be able to teach it. And it, it's been wicked awesome. Yeah. I think that the thing that kind of stands out to me there is just the surprise that we constantly have when we give students, children, people freedom to just explore and, and do what they want, that they, they come back reliably with something that's impressive, you know, and a lot of times we'll even say, oh, I didn't think that they could do this, you know, and I think that that is a pretty clear indication that we need to stop assuming that we know the best way to do all this already, you know, they sit in the chair, they do this work, you know, this is the way that I learned it best. And, and I think that, you know, this is obviously, um, it's an institutional problem. And it's also just, I think, uh, kind of a cultural issue as well, that we don't see as well as we should the value in kind of individual creativity. And the fact of the matter is, that that's the only thing that's going to be valuable moving forward. More and more, everything becomes automated. You know, when you look at machine learning and what computers are able to figure out and optimize and, you know, just through machinery and things like that, what we've been able to automate, we don't need people who can sit in a cubicle and perform a mundane task for 40 hours a week for 30 years or whatever it is. Like nobody's getting, nobody's happy with that and it's not useful. It's not even cost effective. So we're, we're already moving away from that. We're going to continue to move further away from that. And the way that people are going to be able to actually support themselves and to increase our understanding of the world and to be able to solve problems is going to be through these unorthodox creative ways of thinking, which requires us to just kind of let people loose a little bit. Yeah. Let them explore what's interesting to them. It it's it feels like it's dangerous territory as a teacher. Uh, and I remember thinking this could backfire tremendously. Uh, I could get in big trouble. But what's one standard? What's one nine weeks? I've got three more that I could you know compensate for the loss that we might experience here. Um, but being surprised by joys is. is wicked fun and I don't think enough people take part in it. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the characteristics or mindsets of a passionate person do you think? So I, in my experience when you see the passion in somebody else it tends to be very discreet you know it's focused there's there's something that in particular that really catches the interest of the person and because of that innate interest they have in that topic, then they themselves dig a lot deeper. And you'll find people that know the most esoteric facts about, you know, whatever trivial thing or whatever, you know, archaic 
history or, you know, they just know all of this stuff. And you're like, how is it? <laughs> how do you know that? You know? Um, so to me, that that's one of the aspects of it is that if they are truly passionate about something, they, they spend time because they want to on this thing. Um, and I think that the other, the other way that that shows up is in what they do then with that. And this is, I think, where educators can step in to help be more of a guiding force, you know, because when you see, let's say the kid, and, and here's a very common example, this kid is always on his phone playing video games, you know? Yeah. It's like, he doesn't focus on anything that I'm trying to get him to do. Every single day, I'm having to tell this kid to put away his phone. Um, and this is, you know, I hear from his parents that this is what he spends all of his free time doing. And they've tried taking away his stuff and they've tried punishing him. And it's, it's just all he wants to do, right? But I think that that misses the point. Like, here is something that this kid is willing to be berated and badgered. And, you know, he's, he puts up with all of these things so that he can engage in this activity surely that kind of dedication is going to be useful in some way you know that kind of interest can be made to be useful and so i think the job of the educator is in helping to find how that can be turned to something that is productive that's useful that's going to help the student grow because and that's what you see with passionate people as adults you know, they get stuff done, they innovate, they, they're inventors, they create businesses that, you know, they do all of these things, but it's action based on the passion that they have. I think, do you, well, and I'm about to ask, but I also know my answer. <laughs> That's weird. Um, you think companies like Rockstar and EA are missing out on a whole subculture, a whole gamut of money they could be making if they would just place academic standards behind some of their games. I'm, and I'm thinking like <laughs> Assassin's Creed. I don't know if you are a gamer and I'm not much of a I'm gamer. I'm a huge gamer. But I've watched my husband play like Assassin's Creed and Skyrim and some of these are incredibly historically accurate. I mean, that the one where they were in, in Old England, I was just like, oh my gosh, can we just like walk around in this world for... I know, 30 minutes, because this is wicked awesome. This is everything that I love. Um, and so, I don't know. I'm just wondering, like, and, and you see programs like uh, Classcraft, which we are now utilizing, mm -hmm. turning education into gamification. But it's really, you get to um, create your avatar because you earned this many XP because you did that lesson. It's not like the lesson is enveloped into the game. Do you think, or do you know of any games that are, I mean, we've got apps, yeah. Prodigy and stuff like that, but. There's one game in particular that springs to mind and I can't remember the name of it offhand, but um, I was, um, I was teaching at Heartland Middle School for two years and one of the teachers there, an exceptional teacher, taught science, very passionate, great with kids. Um, and he, as a part of his kind of um, remediation on certain math things with students, because he helped with some like tutoring stuff or whatever, he, there was a game that he had his 
students play. And it was a player versus player kind of game. But the way that you, I can't remember, you scored points or the way that you attacked the other avatar or whatever it was um, involved making uh, quick and accurate mathematical calculations. And so they became competitive, you know, because you want to, because kids want to win. You know, everybody likes games and people like to win games. And so the way to do that is to, you know, become more accurate and, and quicker with these calculations. That's what, that's what was happening. Um, so that was a good example. And yeah, I think the idea that of tying academic standards, I think that that is something that is an, a really interesting idea. It's, I think it's doable, but I think that it is probably not going to come from the industry side of these things because that's kind of beyond their purview and, you know, the amount of, the amount of investiture that they want to put into the, these games. I'm not sure that they would want to go that route, but the fact is, you know, I'm a 34-year-old man. I play a lot of video games, you know, and it's and and I have been a classroom teacher. I spent 10 years in the classroom, you know. And so there's plenty of opportunity for people in the classroom to take their knowledge and to take their passions about their hobbies and, and things like that like video games and to use that as a way to enhance their teaching by bringing in these other kinds of things that people might not have thought about. Yeah. I should get you access to that class craft. Uh, uh, they put together, every grade level has um, a whole storyline. So you can play through like fifth grade math, numbers and operations, and you do the lesson. The lesson is just the lesson. Mm -hmm. But after the lesson is done, you get another component of the story. So it's like playing through a campaign mm -hmm. while also doing your lessons. It's pretty fun. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that it's important that that we are starting to make this shift. You know, where we're moving away from just recitation of facts, which you know is even how even when I was in school, I'm not a particularly old person, but you know, when I was in school, I remember memorizing the times tables. You know what I mean? And just because I did memorize them doesn't mean that that was a really effective use of my time either. Yeah, the only thing I really feel like I got out of multiplication is being able to convert uh, fractions, decimals, and percents, figuring out, like, oh, that's 40% off, that's, uh, okay, I'm saving <laughs> six bucks, it's not yeah. a deal after all, you know. Um, and we went way off topic, and I'll bring it back around, but it was, it, you mentioned the gaming side of things, and I was just like, man, we should explore that a little. Um, I'm so, really interested to see what our teachers end up doing with the class craft and seeing kind of the stories that we're going to hear yeah. as this year goes along and as everybody, you know, gets that integrated into what they're doing. I bet we're going to have some really interesting stories. I Well, and I think, I mean, honestly, there's a whole world of it as well um, where you can develop a campaign. So if you're a story writer, mm -hmm. I mean, finding that passion in students and using their stories to create more of more campaigns, you know, because once you play through fifth grade numbers mm -hmm. and operations, you've played through it, you know. Every uh, D&D campaign needs a DM. There right? you go, yeah. Someone's got to write these stories. They're, that's exactly right. So anyway, uh, we when the students were on last week, they had talked about... Uh, bringing film into it, but that's a whole nother way we could ignite passion in students is by letting them use their, their storytelling capabilities to create content for students, you know, moving forward that they 
can gain more academic knowledge, which equals access, you know, at a certain level. Um, anyway, just yeah. a thought. There's, I mean, there's academic knowledge to be gained, and then there's also practical knowledge. What does it take to film, edit, add graphics to something, you know, mix the sounds? Like, all of these things, those are jobs that grown-ups do. Yes. And there's no reason why people should have to wait until they're 20 years old in college to you know, for someone to crack open a computer and be like, okay, now we're going to, we're going to learn how to use, you know, Photoshop, or we're going to use, learn how to use this. I mean, this is something that, and, and you see this when you, when you look at people who are creative in these various artistic fields, they talk about all of the things that they did as children that developed their skills and develop and kept pushing that passion. And it probably didn't have anything to do with sitting in a row while Mrs. So-and-so was, you know, lecturing them from the front of the classroom. No, yeah. And this is one of the things, my, my big gripe with American education has to do with grades. And it's a problem that comes... Like A, B, C, D or yeah. grade levels? No, no. Uh, I, I mean, grades that we assign to students. Because we've got... We've got two uses for them, three possibly, depending on how you look at it. Presumably, or ostensibly, the purpose is to measure a student's understanding of some particular concept. Now, that is problematic because it does more than that too. Because we also use grades to determine eligibility for extracurricular activities. We use it to determine whether or not you get to go to college, what school you get to go to. Every B that a high school teacher puts on a student's transcript takes them further away from being able to go to that Ivy League school. You know what I mean? And so it removes opportunities. And the other thing that we use it for, frankly, in, in education in America, is to hold teachers accountable. You know, it's a way for administrators to say, okay, well, you are doing work because I see that grades are being entered regularly into the grade book. Uh, and all of these things um, are at odds with one another. Oh, I totally agree with you. So that, that's it's when you when you say sitting in a row, you know, make, getting this assignment done. That's what I think of. I think about well, I got to get this grade in the grade book. So today, you guys got to sit here and you've got to do this thing so that I've got a number to give you and I've got a letter grade to give you. And that way, I keep the administration off of my back when you know you can keep me off of your back yeah so there's <laughs> mutually beneficial <laughs> yeah problem but, it, but it's also like it doesn't actually contribute positively to the goal of them being there in the first place which is to learn to expand their understanding yeah no i told man and we'll so then how do you i mean you've been a teacher um how do we create the passion in teachers to kind of go against them? Because you're talking about going against the mold. Mm -hmm. and, and people hate Epic because of going against the mold. How do you get the, the traditional classroom model teacher to decide, I'm going to break this. I've got passion. I'm going to develop these passions. How do you create that passion in the teacher? Or I think I think that it, it starts from the top. It starts from the administrative end of things, you know. And when you look at Epic Charter Schools, it's a good example of it because if you know um, 
if if Ben and David had decided that what they wanted to do was to go into an existing school and try to change things around and add these things, there's no way it would have ever happened, right? Um, even within a school, much less in an entire district, you really had they really had to start from the ground up with a different idea of what it was going to look like, and build the systems out to accommodate that. And I think that that's informative because what what we have, you know, the kind of um, the kind of problem that we're having that I just described with grades as an example, it, it fundamentally comes down to a shift in what it is that we're willing to do, what risks we're willing to take as administrators, as teachers, in order to hopefully have start creating these better outcomes and, and having a more vibrant educational system for our students, you know, because it's it's scary, I think for a principal to have to go back to, uh, you know, an assistant superintendent or a superintendent and they ask them, okay, how did, like, how's your school doing, right? And to not have these kinds of traditional metrics that people look for, you know, what did the test scores look for, uh, look like? Um, what kind of grades, uh, what are the average grades that students are getting and these various things, what do the benchmarks look like? All these kinds of things that are really not indicators for what they're supposed to be indicators for. Yeah. So for for a principal to just say, you know what, I just kind of threw that out. I told the you know, I'm relying on my teachers Yikes. that that they're that they knew that they know what they're talking about, that they, um, you know, that they're good teachers basically, and that they are going to do their jobs well and in inspiring these students. And I'm coming around to offer support wherever I can with resources, with you know, whatever it is. That's a completely different look from what any given school, any, any given brick-and-mortar school in the United States looks like in 2020. I think it's also one of the frustrations, Ben and David, Bart, the assistant soups, all the way down. I mean, it trickles all the way down to the student uh, when we're customizing, personalizing, and individualizing education, yet the plan at the end of the year is to standardize the testing. Um, do you think, do you think we'll ever see in our educational tenure a world where we're not standardized testing anymore? It's hard to say. I think so. It has, this actually, it, it has nothing to do with education at all. It has everything to do with politics. You know, the No Child Left Behind, which was introduced during George W. Bush's administration and, you know, which has subsequently not been done away with, is a big reason why te uh, students and teachers uh, and administration schools are required to do the things that they do. Um, and the fact of the matter is, and this is something that I always told my um, my high school seniors and juniors who are doing their ACTs or retaking their ACTs or SATs, is they're they're afraid of these tests, right? This big standardized test because it means a lot, and I understand that. You know, if you can't get a certain score, you can't qualify to get into the school that you want to. That's a big deal. But the thing that I always told them, and which seemed to be helpful quite a bit, was that all this test actually checks for is how good you are at taking this test. Exactly. That's all it does. And that's the truth for every standardized test. And the fact that we are mandated at a state and federal level to do this testing gets in the way of us actually achieving something beneficial for our students. 
I do think that it's not going to be forever. I think that we're starting to see in education and in the wider the wider world, you know, the wider community, that people are saying this is really doesn't seem to be helpful. But until there is political pressure to change these requirements, it's not going to get changed. And until the legislation itself gets changed, it's obviously not going to change in schools. So you want to hear a crazy, crazy outcome to those kids who learned that U.S. history in their own stinking way? I would love way. to. Every one of them, that was when we were still testing U.S. history for eighth graders, every one of them scored advanced on their standardized test at the end of the school year. That's great. I mean, I, th I think it goes to show that, that when you can actually get buy-in, that you're going to get better results. I think that, uh, you know, that's it still might trick people into thinking like, we'll see these standardized tests then are still useful. Right. But the fact of the matter is whether those students took the test or not, the, the students learned information. And they and they not just learned information, but they learned different ways to think about history and about the facts of that era and also how to instruct their peers. And all of these things are the things that are actually useful. Yeah. I wonder how much of that's going to come through. We're recording in a totally separate space than than, you, than we're used to. Um, okay, so let's say you're the principal of a building. Mm -hmm. Okay, you've got an assistant soup above you, and and maybe even somebody between you and him saying, Nick, we gotta we gotta have you do this, this, and this. How do you cultivate? the passion in your teachers to allow them the freedom and the autonomy to do what they want when you also still have to produce results? That's, I mean, that's the, the million dollar question, right? Like how, how do we fix it? Because we're not trying, you know, what we're trying to do when we're trying to make big changes in education that, that create big outcomes is we're on a train, you know, the tracks are there, this thing is moving, you know, like this is this is the direction it's going. We're trying not just we're trying not, not to drive like a Ferrari around some curves here. This this thing is set. So it's like we're trying to build tracks as we're driving down here, you know, on this moving moving locomotive. But so that is the difficulty. I think that what what it ultimately has to come down to is is looking at our teachers, our classroom teachers, in the same way that we hope that those teachers will look at their students, which at, which is individuals with that, you know, are capable of the things that we need them to be capable of. We just need to give them a chance to actually use what they know, what they've learned, their passion, and uh, that trust. Obviously, is is it's something that's implicit in any job, right? And you don't get hired if they don't think that you can do the job and you don't get to keep the job if you do a bad job. And the, but the concern that seems to be kind of surrounding teachers that, you know, we have in all sorts of different school districts, all sorts of different ways for teachers to be accountable, right? When teachers, when principals come in and they're doing their observations twice a year, you know, and are you checking this box and this box and this box? Do you got your standards written on the board and all these different things? Ultimately, those things, one, are, 
aren't actually giving you a good idea of how good a teacher this is. Right. Because you're in there for two, three days out of a year. You're not seeing the students' stories. You're not seeing the outcomes. You know, you're not you're not there. So you don't you don't actually know even by doing these things. And it's just more hoops to jump through that belie a mistrust in these educators. Yeah. I think the the number one thing I whenever I was a, a principal, I had my tribe. I, I think the number one thing that gave them the the freedom was I said, I trust you. Like, you know, if you if you let a teacher know like I'm gonna trust but verify, um maybe that walkthrough looks completely different because I don't need you to write the standard on the board. Mm -hmm. I am going to trust that you're teaching the standard and the proof will be in the pudding at the end of all of this. Mm -hmm. Like we'll see it, we'll have discussions, but, but I don't think discussions are utilized enough as a formative assessment. How do you put a grade on a discussion? You know, yeah. there are things that I think we're, I don't know, we're shrinking children in a lot of ways. Uh, by making them do it the way we've always done it. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that this this quantifying of a student's ability is is deeply problematic in a number of different ways, and that spills over to how we look at teachers. Because oh, if we're going to quantify the student, then that means that we can and we expect certain growth from them. Then we can quantify the teacher by saying whether or not they've met that, and. Every, you know, people are more complicated than that and situations are more complicated than that. And so I think that we really do a disservice to ourselves when we try to be accountable on that kind of level. You know, there needs to be at some point some good faith. Do you think that an administrator who allows that good faith must also be in proximity to the students to know whether or not it's it's being done right. Yeah, I think that that what it what it would look like ideally. I mean, our our principals in this country don't don't come in mostly from you know not having any classroom experience or just the minimum classroom experience. Many principals have taught for many many years before they become administrators, and so they also have. A good idea of what it takes to do the job and I think that if they're given the freedom to do away with some of the, the bureaucracy in favor of like you say conversations being there and seeing what's happening and conversations as well with parents you know here's here's a fact that nobody's gonna disagree with parents kind of parents know how their kids are doing you know they they can tell if they're struggling with something. They can tell if they're enjoying something. And here's another thing. Parents don't actually know, one, what any of these standards are. Yeah. Two, how, what, how they're being measured, you know, outside of saying, oh, I guess the standardized test somehow measures it, right? Like, they don't know how these are meant to actually reflect a student's understanding. And yet, they've got a better understanding of what it is that, you know, this student is actually feeling and, you know, kind of how they're doing, you know, on an interpersonal, emotional level. Maybe even what they're capable of. Maybe even what they're capable of, yeah. And it, the, the reductionist way that we, that we try to, to, you know, turn this into a, an assembly line 
we see that you know it creates a lot of conflict with parents too you know and for that very reason because like they also recognize that their students are more than just the grades that they got on a certain assignment but that's what we reduce them to pandemic aside because we know we've gotten a lot of students who think maybe this will be the best option for the year do you think that's another reason parents are bringing their students to us because we do individualize because we say hey nick Tell me what you're interested in. Let's see if we can give you an assignment around skateboarding. Like, tell me all the different ways that we can connect geometry to that skateboarding that you do, you know, or... I mean, I'm confident that that's part of the reason. And, you know, there are we've got plenty of anecdotes from parents who talk about that being one of the motivations for them choosing Epic. Um, but, you know, we've grown year after year, you know, in only 10 years going from like having 10 teachers on staff or something like that <laughs> yeah. to having 2000 and being the largest school system in Oklahoma, you know, and again, pandemic aside before the enrollments for the 2020, 2021 school year, we're still at over 30,000 still students, still the third largest public school system in Oklahoma. So yeah, I mean, people are coming here and I think that that's part of it. And I think that it it's, I think it's important to know that, you know, when I was a classroom teacher, I had 150, 160 kids on my on my roster regularly. You know, our our teachers usually have something like 35. Thir yeah, 35 to 50, depending on the the teacher. Yeah, and you know, think about in your workday how much time you can give to each student if you've got 150. And you're an English teacher, so yeah. you're grading essays. Yeah. I mean, realistically, how much can I actually sit down with each individual student to talk about the ways in which they're doing well, the things that they can improve on, here's why this worked, here's why this isn't working, what can we do? You know, I, I sat down, if, if you sit down and just look at it, you know, 55-minute class is pretty standard. Um, so 55 minute class and I've got 35 students in there, that means that I can give each student less than two minutes of attention. And that's not counting all of the bureaucratic kind of, you know, let's take attendance, let's, here's, you know, whatever lesson might actually be for the day, you know. It's just, it's just not enough time, frankly. Yeah. Well, my next question was gonna be barriers. I feel like we've talked about it. Do you think we missed any barriers that are preventing, uh, educators from becoming more passionate, not slipping into status quo. And I mean, I've told the story here, I'll tell you, maybe it'll spark something, but I was uh, doing my full internship, all right, in a school, uh, in a district, and I show up in this ball gown, and we're doing the Academy Awards of Figurative <laughs> Language, and I mean, the kids are into it. Not only are they um, figuring out which songs have this kind of figurative language, but they started, to, they had to write their own acceptance speech uh, for in using the figurative language they were assigned, right? And so um, I had given an acceptance speech, that was the hook, right? And then we listened to all these songs that had figurative language, and then they had to write an acceptance speech. And I remember this teacher from across the hall, who was sweet enough. I mean, she was a, a nice gal and her, her students loved her, right? I mean, she was a great person, but she said, you're never gonna last in education. You're gonna burn out way too quick because you're doing all these things. And I'm thinking, but what if I don't? Don't squash me, you know? What can we do 
to create more passion in educators versus uh, teachers who are scared to break out of that status quo? I think that it's important to recognize that once something becomes the status quo, or, you know, the way it gets that way is for very good reasons. It's not an arbitrary kind of thing. You know, when you talk about classroom sizes, when you talk about student caseload, when you talk about the length of the school day and even the hours, you know, during which school is conducted, uh, and you talk about the ways that we are expected to hold students accountable via grades and via uh, standardized testing, the way that we hold teachers accountable via, you know, their formal evaluations, informal evaluations, and the test scores of their students, and just all of these lists of things, this is all what what creates it. And I think it's it's going to sound, I think, a little bit of a lazy answer, but the fact of the matter is that I think it comes down to money. I think we show as a culture what we care about by what we invest in it. And the investiture that we have in education is nowhere near what it needs to be if we actually desire the outcomes that we say that we desire. So I think for instance, I remember that the Oklahoma Teacher of the Year a couple years ago, I can't remember his name. Um, Sean Sheehan? That might be it. Yeah, that, might, that might be him, that sounds familiar. You know, a year or two after he had won Teacher of the Year for the entire state of Oklahoma, he moves away. Yeah, Texas. Yeah, to Texas. Who's going to pay him more? And, you know, we under, we I think we're starting to see it because we did have a couple years ago, um, you know, through the walkouts, this teacher pay raise. But think about the fact that college is expensive, you know. It not, it's not surprising to anybody the idea of spending sixty to $100,000 on a college education, which is what you need if you want to become a teacher. And you need to do all of these extra things. You need to have these practicum hours. You need to pass these certification tests. And then once you're a teacher, you're also having to, you know, continue to, to you do your continuing education. Um, so all, we've got all of these things for for a job which in Oklahoma uh, people are able to pay you know under forty thousand dollars for who would ever do that even if you wanted to even if that's what your passion was and that's what you desperately wanted to do like I've always wanted to be a teacher I want to help you know inspire the youth of America but you know what I also want to be able to have a family and buy a house and if those two things are at odds you're never going to get the kind of passionate people that you need Add to that the mandates we place on them, the accountability we like to check on them, the, the hoops we ask them to, to jump through. It's no wonder there's a teacher shortage. No, I mean, and one of the things that's always been interesting to me is, you know, people who are not in education talk about what a cushy job it must be to, like, have your summers off, right? And I'm thinking with having summers off and having all of these breaks and, all, you know, all of that, that time off that other people become so jealous of here's a profession with still more than an 80% attrition rate after you know three or five years or whatever it is yeah. you know think about how hard that job must be how unrewarding that job must be how unappreciated you must feel and I think that you begin to see very easily um, a simple fact that I think a lot of our, our politicians flatly refuse to acknowledge 
which is that we actually do need to throw more money at this. You know, you hear, well, you can't throw money at the, you can't just throw money at the problem and make it go away. You know what? Part of the problem is the lack of money. Fact, right? If I need to pay for a mortgage and I want to be able to, you know, invest uh, in my retirement, invest which are all in things that wise people tell us we should do anyway. It's not like it's it's out of the we're crazy people for know, wanting to yeah. invest, you know. You know, but you know, you, you look at, for instance, what what does a, a really good teacher contribute to society versus what does you know. What does a really good lawyer contribute to society? And I think that, and I don't mean to belittle, belittle the profession of attorneys, but I think that we can all see that there is too much of a disparity between what kind of life those professions gets you versus what they bring to the table. Boom. I think we have to end on that note because I don't know where we go from here. Um, <laughs> Uh, passion gave us the light bulb. It put us on the moon. Passion is something I feel like we need to talk about way more often. Uh, but because that's all the time we have today, if you like what you heard, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button to the podcast so that you're notified each time a new episode drops. If you're a returning listener, rate the podcast and leave us a comment. I want to hear what you think. I'm seeing comments coming through, uh, in in the the Podbean and in the Apple, thank you for those. Uh, but tell us what you think about these episodes, and tell us if we're wrong, if we're thinking about it incorrectly. I'd like to know that too. Uh, tune in next week where we are rethinking how leadership and education can better prepare the next generation for a rapidly evolving world.